How did you feel about working simultaneously in two series? I knew I was the luckiest actor in New York City. Really? Oh, my God. To be a working actor in New York City is good enough. To have a steady gig in New York City is a dream come true. To have two, which are awesome shows, forget about it. But, uh, but <laughs> Elliot Stabler and Chris Keller are polar opposites. Yeah. One side of the law and the other. What was it like playing them both on the same day? It wasn't easy. <laughs> For about two or three years, I would wake up at 4.30, get in the van at 6, drive to uh, Oz, kill people and sodomize them till about noon, <laughs> jump in the car, go to SVU, and go arrest people who murder and sodomize people. <laughs> till, about, till about 2 a.m. See my anger. My anger is massive, all encompassing. Being accused of three disses disloyal, dishonest, disrespectful. I don't disagree that there's evil in the world. I do disagree that we're powerless against it. You know, if I was a girl, you get tough. If you was a girl, so you'd be butt ass ugly. She's getting married? To a Bobby? No, no, not a Bobby Tim. He's a guard. He guards the queen. Yeah, well, then I can see how they've got a lot in fucking common. Try to find a common thing that binds us all. Right. Right, Mr. Common thing. See, we are all of us back there. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inside Oz the original Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. Great to have you all back once again, and I hope that you're enjoying the new release schedule that I've gone with for this second half of Series 4. I did dabble with the idea of doing what the actual show did and go on a mid-season break, but doing things this way just helps things stay that bit more up-to-date, and also means that you weren't having to wait months and months for the show to come back. So we're going to get straight into it today as we're looking back at Series 4, Episode 10, Conversions. Holding an 8.4 on IMDb, the episode was written by Tom Fontana with Sunil Nair acting as a story editor for the episode, and was directed by Adam Bernstein, marking his fifth time in the show's director's chair. The episode was originally broadcast on January 14th, 2001, a day on which, despite a record low turnout, President Sampaio of Portugal won re-election with 55.8% of the vote, Power generators in California were suspected of shutting down power plants as a means of selling off high-valued natural gas which contributed to high costs as well as power shortages, while on the gridiron the New York Giants earned an emphatic 41-0 victory over the Minnesota Vikings to claim the NFC Championship, while the AFC Championship was decided in a much tighter game, with the Baltimore Ravens besting the Oakland Raiders by 16 points to 3. Also airing on this night was the 10th episode of the 12th season of The Simpsons, Perky Mom. Another bang-average episode, but it's also the one that features a mention of Oz. My wife and I like watching that Oz show on HBO. Uh, is prison really like that? Well, no. We only had basic cable. Ouch. Also worth mentioning that during the week of the previous episode and this one airing, the Oz soundtrack album was released on Tuesday, January 9th through Avatar Records. 
Containing a who's who of late 90s and early noughties hip-hop artists from all three coasts of the US, the album included a reworking of the show's main theme by Lord Jamar featuring Cool G Rap and Talib Kweli, and also featured tracks by Nate Dogg and Corrupt, Wu-Tang Clan, Snoop Dogg, 3-6 Mafia, and Master P, who we'll see in a future episode. The album peaked at a respectable number 42 on the US Billboard 200 album chart, while in more specialist categories it landed at number 8 on the top R&B and hip-hop album chart, and number 1 on the soundtrack albums chart. Every person on the planet was raised to believe some version of the truth about God, about morality, mortality, about the purpose of life. We usually call those beliefs religion. And if over the course of living, those beliefs break down, if they prove themselves not to be true, we search for a new religion to follow, and we convert. Now that conversion can be traumatic, not only for ourselves, our souls, but for those around us. Kick off with Act 1, in which Augustus explains about how everyone was brought up to believe in a version of the truth, as well as God, morality, mortality, and the purpose of life, and how those beliefs get called religion. However, should those beliefs break down over the course of living and prove themselves to be untrue, then maybe some people may try to find a new religion and convert, something which Augustus says can be traumatic, not only for ourselves and our souls, but for those around us as well. During this opening, rather than go with projections or other props like we've had before, we simply get the word truth and some religious iconography appear. It would have been fun and in keeping with the aesthetic of the show to have perhaps brought those projections back, but considering the behind the scenes issues that we discussed in the last episode, I can understand why they've just gone with these here. The episode proper opens in M-City with McManus calling for everyone's attention. We see Saeed in the foreground, and we can also see Morales, Jazz, and Keller hanging around as well. McManus addresses the inmates, telling them that in his ongoing attempt to improve the quality of their lives, he will be instituting some new programs. The first of these is a weekly showing of an instructional video, which he says will take up 30 minutes of TV time, and that attendance is mandatory. Needless to say, the inmates aren't exactly thrilled with the disruption to their viewing pleasure, as Murphy tries to end the commotion by saying that he wants to hear silence a line that's probably a bit too philosophical to get into here. The second of McManus' new ideas, which has been hidden underneath a big blue sheet of tarpaulin, is the brand new M-City cage, where rather than being sent to the hull, rule breakers will instead be placed in the cage in full view of everyone, or the adoring public as McManus calls them. This doesn't appear to be based on anything in particular in terms of real prisons from the time of broadcast, although I'm sure there are variations of it in some prisons around the world. Instead, it seems to be influenced by medieval torture cages, in which people would be placed inside for the public to see as a form of humiliation. Cages like this will have been used many years previously in prisons, but will have been phased out over time for being inhumane, which seems at odds with McManus' more liberal approach and ideology, almost as if Oz is regressing rather than evolving. He asks if anyone has any questions, which leads to Keller putting his hand up and asking how big McManus' penis is, which gets a laugh out of a few of the inmates. McManus humours Keller with a chuckle, before telling him that he gets the honour of being the first person in the cage, referring to Keller as a slug, which probably sounded better in his head. A slug is quite small and would be able to just go through the cage's fencing quite easily. Keller is led to the cage, taking in the adulation of some of the inmates as Jazz gets a barb in, and is locked inside the cage as Beecher watches on from a distance. McManus tells everyone else to find a seat so that they can get started with the first video 
which Boost Malice seems to be well up for watching as it's about building a house. Although it does also sound a bit like a recruitment film for some kind of cult. Life's like a house. Sure, you can paint it and decorate it alone, but then only you'll appreciate it. Others won't. And don't you want them to? That's what community is for. Over in Solitary we see... Oh god, it's Omar. Hello, Omar. Glad to see you again. He's on his way back to MC, having spent an undetermined amount of time in Solitary following his knife attack on Menia. And he passes Supreme, who is still in Solitary and apparently has been for the last six months since we last saw him, having been taken away having had a shank found in his pod that was linked to the Shemin and Brown murders. There is a deleted scene that goes into this in a bit more detail that I'll talk about later on, but in terms of how things are at this point in time in canon, the evidence against Supreme is at best circumstantial. Granted, the Shank was found in his pod, but Poet shared that pod too. Who's to say the Shank wasn't his? In terms of other commitments, I couldn't find anything that Lord Jamar was involved with at this time that would warrant keeping Supreme in solitary for these first few episodes. Brand Nubian had released the Rock in It single in 2000, as well as playing a one-off show in Zurich, Switzerland in May of that year, but I couldn't find anything that would have meant that Lord Jamar would have needed to have been offset, and thereby write Supreme out for the time being. Supreme does indicate that he is on his way back to M-City at some point though, telling Omar to tell everyone that Supreme isn't done and that he's coming back strong. Omar gives him a thumbs up as Officer Smith tells Supreme to quiet down and closes the hatch on his cell, as Supreme mentions something about the murderous Bond and to let the others know. Omar is taken for a meeting with McManus, who tells Omar that he's brought him out of solitary because Omar has said that he wants to change, and that he's going to give Omar that chance and do whatever he can to help. For McManus to do that though, he needs Omar off of the drugs, and he tells Omar that if he screws up again, he's going straight back to solitary. He asks whether or not Omar understands, Omar giving a very muted response, as we cut to under the stairs where right away he's back taking drugs with Poet, mentioning that McManus called him a drug abuser, something which he says isn't true, because truth be told he treats his drugs better than most. He also refers to Poet as Jackson, something which I don't remember anyone else, certainly on the inmate side of things, having done previously. There may have been a time when Saeed referred to him by his name back when Poet was being published and released back in Series 2, but even then, more often than not, I think Saeed still referred to him as Poet. Omar also mentions that Mamanus wants him to go to the rehab sessions, which Poet does actually make a case for, saying that you get to talk about yourself a lot, but Omar says that he's doing 17 to life and that by the time he gets out, there isn't going to be anything to recover. 17 to life, also known as an indeterminate sentence, just seems to be used as a catch-all term for Omar's sentence here, as we heard last episode that he was in fact sentenced to 75 years, and eligible for parole in 20. Watching the show back, 20 years sounded like an absolute lifetime back then, that you actually forget that in real-world terms, Omar would have actually had his parole hearing by now. He takes another hit of drugs and slaps hands with Poet, as the TV gives us some huge news while Morales and Chico watch on. Miguel Alvarez, a fugitive from the Oswald State Correctional Facility for the past six months, has been captured. Customs agents near Nogales, Arizona found Alvarez late last night as he tried to cross the border into Mexico. Alvarez is coming back. So, the motherfucker tried to kill me. Yeah, only because you tried to kill him. Or did I get the story wrong? Let it go, Chico. So after an absence of six episodes, 
last appearing in Series 4A, Episode 3, The Bill of Wrongs, Miguel makes his long-awaited return to the show. As I mentioned back in that episode, Kirk Acevedo was written off of Oz to cover not only in case the show didn't return, but to also cover for Kirk spending time in England filming on HBO's Band of Brothers, a show which had still yet to hit the air at this time, premiering on HBO on October 5th, 2001. Miguel is down at receiving and discharge, changing out of his orange jumpsuit when Leo arrives on the scene. He asks Leo whether or not he missed him, Leo firmly telling him no, as Miguel says that he almost made it out of the country and into Mexico. Leo says that they would have found Miguel there, but Miguel was focused on making his way down to South America, trekking through Guatemala, Nicaragua and Colombia, and even walking to Chile through the Andes, before finally lighting a little spark called Tierra del Fuego. A small archipelago shared between Chile and Argentina, Tierra del Fuego's literal translation is Land of Fire, but it's also known as the End of the Earth, as Leo says here. Miguel asked whether Leo would have gone that far to capture him, Leo conceding that he probably wouldn't have done, as Miguel remarks about maybe doing so the next time, before being taken back to solitary. The news report mentioned that Miguel was picked up by customs agents at Nogales, Arizona, meaning that during his six-month trek, Miguel had covered around 2,408 miles, with the quickest route taking him through Pennsylvania, which having discussed that deleted scene previously, we know that he made his way to Pittsburgh, before crossing the country through Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Missouri, Oklahoma, Northern Texas, and New Mexico, before heading to the border in Arizona. From there, Miguel would have to travel through, as he says, Mexico, Guatemala, and Nicaragua, having also made his way through Honduras or El Salvador along the way, before passing through Costa Rica on his way to the Panama Canal. From there, it gets a little tricky, as according to Google Maps, he would have had to take a 90-minute flight into Colombia, something which could possibly flag Miguel as being a flight risk, and likely end with him being extradited back to the US. Assuming that Miguel evaded capture in Panama, however, once he made it to Colombia, he would have had to travel through Ecuador and Peru, before finally passing through Chile and part of Argentina en route to Tierra del Fuego, during which Miguel would have covered over 9,000 miles since leaving the US, and close to 11,500 miles since escaping Oz. Having had his hands and feet handcuffed, Miguel is taken back to solitary by Officer Smith, passing Supreme along the way, who asks Miguel what's up. As Miguel is placed in his cell, he asks Smith who that was, Supreme of course having arrived after Miguel had escaped. Smith asks what does it matter, as Miguel says that he just likes to know the quality of criminal he's neighbouring with, but Smith says that Supreme is a wank job just like Miguel, and closes the cell door and hatch, leaving Miguel to take a long look around his small cell, and after all that effort, Miguel has wound up right back where he started. Good to have Miguel back as he's not only a fan favourite, but it opens up storyline possibilities with some of those that have arrived in his absence, as shown in the conversation between Morales and Chico, and with him passing by Supreme. For now though, he's still locked away in solitary, so at the moment his contribution is still somewhat limited. He will get back to M-City at some point, a very different M-City to the one that he left behind all those months ago, so it'll be interesting to see how Miguel is integrated into the unit going forward. Cut to the kitchen where Chico is trying to convince Omar to put something into Miguel's food, and saying that if he kills Miguel, he'll make sure that Omar gets all the drugs that he wants. Omar doesn't seem keen on the idea though, and when asked why not, he tells Chico that he just doesn't like him. There's something about Chico that just rubs him the wrong way, although Omar just can't put his finger on it. 
Endearing himself to Omar, Chico tells him fuck you as well as calling him the N-word, to which Omar grabs a knife and plunges it into Chico's stomach. Officer Dagnasty runs in to restrain Omar, who doesn't put up much of a fight, pretty much surrendering immediately, as backup is called and Ryan looks on from the pantry. Unsurprisingly, this is the last that we'll be seeing of Chico for a few episodes, as we see Omar being escorted back to solitary where Supreme mentions that his return to the unit must be some kind of record. Omar passes Miguel's cell and tells him that he owes him, although he doesn't get the chance to go into further detail, as we see Miguel looking confused as the scene fades to black to close out Act 1. And just a heads up that this clip contains a racial slur, so you've been warned. Put something Alvarez's food. Like what? I don't know, rat poison or something. Look, the point is, you kill him, Omar, I'll see that you get all the fucking tits you need. Huh? What do you say? No. No? Why no? I just don't like you. You don't like me? I can't put my finger on it. It's like, I don't know if it's the way you look, the way you smell, your breath, the way you talk. I don't know what, you know, but just something about you just rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. Oh, fuck you, nigga. You bet? Uh-huh. Fuck, nigga, that gotta be some kind of record or something. You Alvarez? Yeah. You owe me, dog. Inside. Act 2 opens up with a flashback, as usual indicated by a lovely colour filter, of Ryan and Claire fucking in the toilets. This one being from when Ryan talked Claire into killing Nikolai. Flashing back to the present in MC, we see that Ryan is detailing all of this to Keller saying that he and Claire fucked about five times in the toilets before she started acting weird. As Ryan says that, we see Beecher pass by, he and Keller still giving each other looks but not actually talking, as Keller asks about Claire becoming possessive. Ryan says that when McManus came back, he shipped Claire off to Unit J, and that he was at the very least relieved. As we go to a wide shot of the two of them, we see that they're playing chess, Keller having seemingly gotten used to the rules by now, but also symbolic of the relationship between these two having become much more solid. They do still have their differences, but they've become quite the team over the last few episodes. This could also be symbolic of them perhaps strategizing their next move to increase their standing within the unit. Ryan says that he hasn't seen much of Claire since, as Keller cracks a joke about his esteem for Ryan having risen 69%, but asks one manipulative turd to another, was he doing it just for the sex, or was it to get her to do some other kind of nasty? Ryan answers that it was just for the sex, but the implication is clear by how he doesn't look Keller in the eye until he places Keller's king in check. Keller says fuck at the development, but it's actually a pretty simple move to get out of. He could just move his king to E1 to get out of it. Cut to the dark corridor where Ryan is being escorted somewhere by Menia, as we see Claire off in the distance coming in the opposite direction. Ryan notices her and tries to keep his head down, but Claire accuses him of winking at her and tells Menia to take Ryan to the hall. Ryan hits one of the best that's bullshits not uttered by McManus, as Menia eventually agrees to take Ryan, as Ryan calls Claire a dyke as they leave, and even though the corridor is extremely dark, 
you can tell that Claire is proud of herself for the trouble she's caused. Cut to the hall where Ryan is just whistling away to himself while taking a rest on the cold floor, when all of a sudden the hatch opens and Claire has a here's Johnny moment. As she unlocks the door, Ryan jumps to his feet and covers his cock and balls as Claire asks whether or not he's missed her. The terrified, oh Christ, would suggest that he hasn't, but Claire knows what Claire wants and she pushes Ryan against the wall and starts to passionately kiss him. But I think it's safe to say that Ryan isn't into this at all, as we then cut to the hospital where Gloria is returning to work after her sabbatical. As appears to be customary, this technically being a new series and all, it means that Lauren Velez comes into it with a new haircut, this time sporting a shorter bob compared to the longer frizz that she had before. Not gonna lie, I'm not a fan of this one. I think it makes Lauren look much older than she actually is. Gloria is welcomed back by a nurse, played here again by Tessel Williams, and who I'll just refer to as Nurse Williams from here on out, who tells Gloria that it's great to have her back. Gloria saying that it's good to be back. She heads into her office where Pete arrives at more or less the same time with some flowers, saying that she was hoping to have got them on Gloria's desk before she arrived. They share a hug and Pete says that Gloria looks great, and even touches her hair slightly, so clearly Pete is a bigger fan of this look on Gloria than I am. Gloria says that she feels renewed and ready to jump back into the job with both feet. Pete arranges to meet up later so they can review some cases, and the two depart speaking a little Spanish to each other. I always like those little moments between the two of them. You get some proper mother-daughter vibes when they do that. Having said that she was ready to jump straight back into the job, Gloria is summoned to see an incoming patient. The orderly saying that the poor bastard has suffered a shank to the face, but apparently the other guy wasn't so lucky, so this seems to have been a hell of a battle that's taken place off screen. Cut to the staff room where Pete and Gloria are having their catch up, and McManus has joined them for this as well as he hands Gloria a copy of Cyril's file. Gloria mentions that she's heard about the incident with Jack Eldridge, as Pete says that Cyril's condition is only getting worse, and that they're struggling to find the right balance of medication as Gloria asks McManus to arrange for Cyril to be examined. Having gone over everything, or at least McManus makes it appear that way, Pete dismisses herself so that she can go and attend another group, leaving McManus and Gloria alone. Sensing his opportunity, McManus engages charm mode and asks Gloria if she wants to get dinner, but Gloria politely declines the offer. McManus, the man who can barely know a woman for more than a few seconds without asking them out to dinner, insists that he was meaning just dinner as friends, Gloria telling him that she knows that and to consider it a rain check before getting up and leaving. The man is looking a little annoyed at having his advances been rejected to close the scene. Part of me wants to believe that Mamanus was just wanting to have dinner with Gloria as friends and nothing more, as it does appear on the surface that they haven't seen each other for quite some time, but Mamanus track record doesn't exactly do him any favours and Gloria is still only six months on from having been brutally raped. Perhaps if he'd offered to go to dinner some time, giving Gloria the option rather than saying let's go tonight, then maybe Gloria would have been a bit more receptive to the idea. Cut to Gloria examining Cyril, seemingly coming to the end of it as we only see a check in his pupil dilation. Cyril asks where Gloria has been, Gloria telling him that she took a few months off for a little vacation. Cyril asks if that was after she got raped, and says that he could have done with a vacation after he got raped, a callback to the incident with Schillinger back in series 2, something which seemed to get forgotten about pretty quickly. He says that it was okay though, because he had Ryan there to help him, and that he wishes he could do the same for him, and says that Ryan is sick. 
Ryan having apparently developed a cold while he was in the hall. Gloria tells an officer that he can take Cyril back to M City, as we cut to the kitchen where right on cue Ryan is coughing his guts up right over a pan of food. Chucky telling him, for Christ's sake, pack it in, you're going to get the whole prison ill. Ryan claims that he's not contagious anymore, implying that he may have been like this for several days, as he turns around and sees Gloria watching him from a distance, but she soon leaves to head back to the infirmary. Ryan tells Chucky that on second thoughts he isn't feeling so hot after all, and heads off to the infirmary himself, Chucky not looking impressed as Ryan leaves. Cut to Gloria giving Ryan an examination this time, and it turns out that Ryan is congested, and she asks Nurse Williams to give Ryan an albuterol, a medication used to open up the airways in the lungs, and that they should keep Ryan in overnight. Nurse Williams asks Ryan to follow her, and there's not that much interaction between Gloria and Ryan, as the last time they were in each other's company, Gloria was trying to claw his eyes out. We see Gloria collecting her things from her locker, where we see that Gloria has kept Keenan's shamrock after it was delivered with a letter. As Gloria is taking a look at it, Claire enters and welcomes Gloria back to work, Gloria thanking her for doing so. Rather than having something resembling a conversation that normal people would do, Claire takes this moment to tell Gloria that she's been taking good care of Ryan while she's been away. Looking somewhat puzzled, Gloria asks what Claire means, Claire saying that she's been giving Ryan a helping hand. The only thing that was missing was Claire going, eh, eh, know what I mean, eh, and jabbing Gloria in the ribs. As nighttime rolls in, Ryan, awake in his bed and wearing his socks halfway up his leg like a schoolgirl from an anime, notices Gloria through a window, and gets out of his bunk to go and talk with her. As he heads through the door to Gloria's office, he's told to get back in bed by Officer Benny, the first of many new characters in this episode. That's literally all I have to go on as far as a name goes for this character. The actor went uncredited and Gloria just calls him Benny. There's literally nothing else that I can find out about this character. Gloria tells Benny that it's okay and that she wanted to speak with Ryan anyway, but she does ask him to stay nearby, so Gloria is still being very cautious around Ryan. They head into her office as Gloria asks if Ryan is feeling any better, and she then produces the shamrock from a drawer in her desk, asking Ryan if he was the one that sent it to her. I mean, I don't know who else she thought it would have been, it came with a letter proclaiming it was all for her, and as best as I can recall, no one else on the show has professed their undying love to her, so it was probably a safe bet that this came from Ryan. He tells her yes as she asks if he killed Keenan, as we get a flashback of Ryan ripping the shamrock from around Keenan's neck. Ryan once again telling her yes, this time in a more whispered tone. Gloria points out that she could tell Leo about Ryan having murdered Keenan, and that he'd likely wind up on death row as a result, but Ryan says that Keenan didn't deserve to breathe because of what he did to her, and that if he has to die because of that, then okay, go ahead and kill him. Gloria tells Ryan to go back to bed, but as Ryan rises from his chair, he leans in and whispers to Gloria that he loves her. As Gloria with a bit more volume, asks for Benny and Carl, another new mystery officer, that she's finished with Ryan. They escort Ryan back to his bed as Gloria takes another look at the shamrock, and later visits with Pete in her office. I've hated Ryan O'Reilly for so long. So deeply. He's responsible for the death of my husband, but he did it out of love for me, and Keenan too, all for me. He loved me more than Preston ever did. Brian's love is enormous. 
overwhelming, unconditional, undying. The man crazy to push him away, or... Gloria, listen to yourself. His love is anything but unconditional. And often, anything but love. Now look, the feelings he has for you are dangerous. He is dangerous. And for you to encourage him, giving that you don't share those feelings. But I do. I do share his feelings. I love Ryan O'Reilly. This episode had got off to a pretty decent start. We had Miguel back, Omar wasn't around as much as he was last time, but this brought it right back down with a development that makes absolutely no sense at all and quite frankly makes Gloria look like a moron. Because of Ryan O'Reilly and despite there being problems in her marriage, Gloria's husband is dead which has in turn caused a rift with her in-laws and originally Gloria was convinced that Ryan was the one responsible for having her raped because of this twisted idea of what Ryan believes to be love for her, something which Gloria even referenced herself. Ryan may have admitted that he killed Keenan for Gloria, but that doesn't change the fact that for a long time she did believe that Ryan was capable of having been the one to have had her raped. Having Gloria's feelings change in light of this Keenan revelation is a bit of a stretch on its own, although not entirely impossible. But that doesn't change that Ryan had someone killed. Someone that Gloria, at least at some point, loved dearly. Don't forget as well that Ryan ended his own marriage with Shannon around the time of his cancer scare. The time around which he really began to develop his feelings for Gloria. I just can't get my head around where Gloria is supposed to be coming from here. She even admits that she's hated Ryan for so long and that he killed her husband out of love for her. How does that not sound like the act of a complete psychopath? asking whether she's crazy to push him away or not. No, Gloria, that's not crazy. That's exactly what a normal human being would do. Even before she says, I love Ryan O'Reilly, she says, God help me. She knows that what she's saying is completely absurd. How is that not an immediate red flag? Pete is completely on the ball in saying that Ryan's love is anything but unconditional, and she's right. Gloria shouldn't be encouraging him. There's already two dead people in this saga. How many more will there be? We see Ryan being taken out of the infirmary to be taken back to MC, and as he passes Gloria they exchange a little smile between each other like a couple of high schoolers. Stop it Gloria! This isn't helping things! Augustus narrates about Columbus landing in the New World, October 12, 1492 for you date seekers out there, and how a Catholic priest came along with him and that ever since, more and more priests have been coming over to try and convert Native Americans, getting them to kiss the crucifix and stop smoking peyote, as well as covering up their nakedness. I wasn't sure what peyote is, but it's derived from the Spanish meaning caterpillar cocoon, and is basically a small cactus that contains psychoactive alkaloids, specifically mescaline. If you've ever seen a film or a TV show where someone has bitten into a cactus and they start tripping, chances are peyote is what they've chomped into. The best example I can think of off the top of my head is that scene in Beavis and Butter Do America where they're wandering the desert and Beavis has the hallucination to the white zombie song Ratfing Suicide Tanks and Cannibal Girls. It is listed as a Schedule 1's controlled substance by the DEA, however it is exempt for use in religious ceremonies by the Native American Church, 
and was codified as a statute as part of the American Indian Religious Reform Act of 1978, becoming common law in 1991 as part of Peyote Way Church of God vs. Thornborough. Not thrilled with this new way of life, Augustus narrates that the natives maimed, tortured and burned the priests, offering up the bodies to their own gods. As we cut to Wem City where the inmates are, to your complete surprise I'm sure, watching TV. Beecher approaches Morales and asks what they're watching. Morales telling him that Devlin is about to be inaugurated for his second term as governor, Devlin having won the election between being shot and now. Beecher shouts up to Murphy to change the station, but Jazz says that Devlin is on every channel and throws a piece of paper at the TV, Poet saying that they should petition Leo about getting cable for them to watch instead. Keep that in mind, Poet, we might come back to that someday. Devlin is shown being pushed around in a wheelchair, as Cyril says to Augustus, he's got wheels just like you, which was kind of sweet, and Augustus even has a little laugh to himself. Devlin is sworn in as Leo watches on a TV in his office as Pete enters and asks whether or not Leo is wishing that he was up there too. He takes a moment before saying that Neil Bourne will be a great lieutenant governor, which doesn't seem to be a reference to anyone in particular. Pete tells Leo that that isn't what she asked though, and asks whether or not Leo regrets dropping out of the race. Leo, however, and seeming surprisingly chipper, tells her no as Booz Malice pops into the office saying there's a Barry Levine on the phone. Leo looks confused, asking who's Barry Levine? Bushmal is saying that he doesn't know, but Barry says that he knows Leo. Leo again asks, Barry Levine? As Bushmal says that he's calling about the Warden's Conference, which is where the penny drops as Leo asks if Bushmal means Barney Levin. Bushmal is saying that might have been it. Of course, you don't have to be a master codebreaker to work out that Barry Levine and Barney Levin are a mixture of Barry Levinson, one of the creators and producers of the show. Frustrated, Leo tells Booz Malice to let Barney know that he'll call him back later and to use the intercom next time, and I get the feeling this isn't the first time they've had this conversation. Leo confides in Pete that Booz Malice is driving him crazy, saying that he's the worst assistant he's ever had, managing to mangle every detail of the previously mentioned Warden's conference. I mean, to be fair, Leo, why would you put Booz Malice in charge of organising a conference? That's just asking for trouble. Pete asks why doesn't Leo just get a new assistant, Leo asking how many drug dealers can use Excel. Well, Augustus maybe? And while he's not a drug dealer, I reckon Beecher could probably use Excel. There are options there. Pete mentions about hiring from outside the prison, Leo pointing out that they always end up quitting and getting jumpy being in that sort of environment. What he needs to do is find someone smart, funny, diplomatic, but most importantly fearless. Having been given that very precise criteria, Pete says that she might have the perfect person, someone that she met when doing volunteer work at a homeless shelter, and her name is Floria Mills. Let's meet her, shall we? I'm not late, am I? No, you're uh, right on time. Oh, my car broke down on the expressway. I don't know why they call that road expressway, because the traffic moves like snails. Then I managed to hitch a ride with a trucker, only we got to talking, so we missed the exit ramp, and then he didn't want to come all the way up here. Turns out he served four years for armed robbery, so I had to walk, which is why I must look like yesterday's gumbo. Here's my resume. Do you always have this much energy? Actually, you caught me on one of my slow days. Congratulations, Floria. For what? Just got the job. I did? Yes. <laughs> what an 
absolute breath of fresh air Floria is, played here by Dina Atlantic in only her second acting role. Her only previous credit to this was for a second season episode of Third Watch, broadcast on NBC about five weeks prior to her appearance here. So Floria gets to work repairing the damage that Bruce Mallers has done when organising the Wardens Conference, on the phone to some guy named Cal saying, come on now, nothing's impossible. She certainly has a charm to her as she talks Carl into doing the catering for the function, and as she walks through the kitchen she's getting hollers and wolf whistles from the inmates. And while the shot is actually quite far away from him, it looks as though Jazz was trying his tried and tested method of whipping his dick out to try and impress Floria. Hearing the commotion, and possibly by having his female nearby senses go off, Momanus looks on from his office, seemingly not put off by having been rebuffed by Gloria earlier on. Cut to Leo's office where he's enjoying a glass of whiskey, or possibly having enjoyed several as he's got his tie off and first few shirt buttons undone, as Floria knocks on the door asking if it's okay that she heads home. Leo congratulates Floria on a good first day as she admits that she had fun. Leo laughs at that, saying that fun isn't a word he would associate with Oz. Changing the subject, Floria asks whether or not he's ever considered redecorating, a line which seems a little insignificant in isolation, but as we continue on through the show, we'll actually have a bit of a payoff, but we'll talk more about that another time. She says that she'd like to make a few changes, perhaps even brighten up the place somewhat and get some new furniture. Leo seems fine with the idea, but Floria is sure to mention that she doesn't want to step on Leo's wife Mary's toes, saying that sometimes wives can take their husband's offices very personally. Leo tells Floria that Mary won't mind. In fact, lately she doesn't care much about anything that Leo does, because that morning, Leo and Mary decided to separate. Floria apologises, which was nice of her considering that it wasn't exactly her fault for not knowing. She's only known Leo a short time, as Leo mentions that Mary has asked him to move out of the house. Asking if Leo has anywhere to go, Floria says that she'll organise him a hotel room, saying there's a hire on Bartlett and Third. There isn't, so don't bother going and looking. And while I admire Floria's can-do attitude, maybe just scale down a little bit from the Hyatt there. That place is expensive. The cheapest one I found in Yonkers currently costs $160 a night. Telling her it's okay, and possibly because he's watching his wallet, Leo says he'll just crash on the couch in his office. Floria asks if that's wise, but he tells her that sometimes the walls around Oz make him feel safe, something which he admits may sound a little odd. Leo tells Floria that he isn't sure why he's telling her all of this, mentioning that he hasn't told anyone else yet, as Floria wishes him a good night and calling him Warden, Leo telling her to call him Leo, as the scene closes with Floria telling Leo to go easy on the whiskey. That line towards the end there, the one from Leo about why he's telling all of this to Floria despite barely knowing her, that established her really well I thought. As I said before, she's a breath of fresh air, and her bubbly personality provides some much, much needed relief to the bleakness that we've had seemingly for quite some time now. A really good early appearance for this character. Someone who maybe doesn't share my opinion of Floria is Boost Mallets, who's visiting with Norma and giving out about how Leo fired him, and how he got no thank you or anything, Norma telling him that maybe it was for the best. Boost Mallets complains about having to go back to doing janitorial work as Norma asks him if he thinks that she enjoys her job, which includes answering Miss Sally's emails and forging her autograph on photos, and that it doesn't really matter what they do so long as they do their best. Seemingly having calmed down from his rant, Boosmalis tells Norma that she has the best perspective on the world, 
and as he takes her by the hand, he tells her that the last few months have meant everything to him. Norma saying that she just wants him to be happy, and even calling him by his first name. Busmalis describes how he feels delirious when he's with her, and tells Norma that he loves her, as he then gets down on one knee right there in the interview room, and asks Norma to marry him. After a very short pause, Norma tells him yes, and they share a kiss as Max Sands, the biker with a head and face tattoos paid by Mike Orotsky, nods his approval to this new union. Mike Orotsky hasn't had a credited appearance on the show yet, he won't get that until Series 5, but he has been a background player for quite a while now, similar to Peter James Kelch who plays Jim Burns, who we'll talk more about in a little while. Back in M-City, Boos Malley is giving Rebido the good news about his engagement, and tells Rebido that he wants him to be his best man. But Rebido asks whether he's thought all of this through or not, saying that marriage can be a big step, and asks what kind of life can he and Norma have together, what with him being an Oz and her on the outside. Busmalis tells his friend that he won't be an Oz for long though, and that he started to dig another tunnel while Rebido was in the hospital, and he pushes the bed forward and removes a floor tile to reveal the hole in the ground, and we get a great shot looking up at the two of them from inside the hole. I really liked that, in part because it looked like they were recreating the cover to NWA's Straight Outta Compton. Busmalis tells Rebido, You and me, old friend, will dance the Hesapico at my wedding, as Augustus narrates about Saul riding to Damascus and changing his name to Paul after seeing a huge cross in the sky, and says that most aren't that lucky and that for us, signs from God aren't quite that clear, as we cut to the library where the Muslims are gathered as Arif reads from the Quran, reading Children of Israel, the Israelites, 1722. The reading is interrupted by Leroy, however, who says that he needs to speak with Saeed, respectfully referring to him as minister. Saeed, however, tells Arif to continue reading, as Leroy goes to leave. He soon changes his mind, though, and tries to speak with Saeed again, telling Saeed that he wants to become a Muslim, but Saeed just tells him to go away. Leroy admits that he's been fierce in the past, hanging with Adebisi and all, but that when he saw Adebisi bleeding and Saeed holding the blade, he knew that he had to change. He drops to his knees and removes his bandana, again telling Saeed that he wants to join them, but Saeed isn't having any of it, telling Leroy to get up. As Leroy refuses, Saeed becomes enraged and shouts for him to get up for a second time, leading to Officer Johnson entering the room to see what's going on. Saeed tells Johnson that Leroy is harassing him, Johnson asking Leroy if that's true, which of course he denies. Putting an end to proceedings, Johnson tells Leroy to leave, which he eventually does, but only after a long stare between himself and a reef who seemed to be more willing to listen to Leroy than Saeed was prepared to. You know I never liked Leroy, did. Man's done nothing but flex since he came into Oz, but if his conversion is real, then... It's not. How do you know for sure? Now, you of all people, you're going to question my ability to judge others. You. No. Things are as you say they are. And I don't want no more talk about Leroy Tid. Over in a drug counselling session, Leroy describes himself to the group as a fiend, as well as a liar and a thief, and that he just wants to turn his life backwards, but that no one believes him due to his past dealings. Pete says that the group believes him, even asking some of the inmates to show some support, a little of which comes from Ryan, but not so much from Poet, while Beecher looks as though he genuinely believes that Leroy is trying to turn his life around 
which he tells Saeed later in the day when they meet in the computer room. This guy, Leroy Tid, I think he is genuinely sorry. I think he genuinely wants to change. And you came to this conclusion how? He was in rehab today. Many and ours have used rehab, have used Islam for their own agenda. Tid is one. You've embraced a lot of men far worse than him. Jefferson Keene, a poet out of BC? No! Not out of BC! I see. Oh, you see? You see what? Tid hung with Adebisi, and you feel guilty about having killed him. No, I do not feel guilt. I did the right thing. I did what had to be done. Jesus Christ. That's what I said about Andrew Schillinger and Hank Schillinger. Taking a life is acceptable as long as it's excusable, right? BG, get away from me. This is what I was looking for in the last episode, Saeed coming to terms with what happened after killing Adebisi, and how he goes forward from there, whether that be by repenting for his sin, or trying to justify his actions to himself. Why we didn't get this in the last episode, I'll never know. I can only assume that it must have been something to do with the shooting schedule, because from a storyline perspective, this completely belonged in the previous episode. Cut to the cafeteria where Robson is hitting the punchline to a joke that I'm not going to repeat. But needless to say, it raises the ire of Saeed and the other Muslims, who are sat at the next table. Robson turns around and asks what's the matter with Saeed. Didn't he find the joke funny? The only joke that Saeed sees is Robson, which leads to Robson grabbing a shank from the waistband of his trousers and attempting to murder Saeed. A huge fight breaking out amongst the two tables as Leroy looks on from the kitchen. Robson is restrained by two officers as he continues to hurl racist abuse at Saeed, as we then see him being thrown into the hole, and he does a proper slide along the ground as he's thrown in there. So clearly, despite seeing McManus introduce the cage in M-City earlier on, the hole is still a thing. It hasn't been done away with entirely. It's obviously still been used for incidents that occur away from M-City, and for inmates from Unit B or elsewhere. With things having settled down, Possibly after a short lockdown, Schillinger is back in Unit B playing pool, because what else would he be doing? Leroy approaches and tells Schillinger that he wants to talk to him, but Schillinger asks for one of his minions to tell Leroy that he doesn't want to talk to whatever the politically correct term is for Leroy's race. Let's put it this way, it's certainly not what Schillinger thinks it is. I've read a number of interviews with J.K. Simmons over the years, and he said that at times he found playing Schillinger to be a miserable experience. Not from a writing standpoint or anything like that, and he doesn't seem regretful of playing him as it's the role that essentially launched his career. But on occasion he would get recognised on the street, and he would actually be told by people that they agree with what Schillinger was saying on the show, and that some people actually saw Schillinger as some kind of anti-hero, which, fuck me, talk about missing the point entirely. Not rising to the bait, Leroy says that Schillinger's going to want to hear what he has to say and that he knows about the dust-up between the Aryans and the Muslims, saying that Saeed's to blame for Robson spending a few days in the hole, although he pronounces Robson as Robson, which I think is the first on the show. Leroy offers to take care of Saeed for Schillinger, for the right amount of cash, of course, but Schillinger isn't willing to form an alliance, saying that they can take care of Saeed themselves, and that they don't need to subcontract, Schillinger clearly having learned his lesson from when he tried to have Diane murder Beecher. 
Leroy, however, says that he's going to get close to Saeed, close enough to cut his throat, something which seems to get Schillinger's attention, as we then cut to the visiting room where Schillinger is meeting with Carrie, grabbing her a soda from the vending machine. Schillinger asks what the doctor has said about the pregnancy, which seems to be proceeding okay as Carrie says that they had a sonogram done and passes him a printout of it. Schillinger looks so proud of knowing that he's going to be a grandfather, but Carrie tells him that she's worried because she still hasn't heard anything from Hank, saying that it's been five months now, which sort of messes up the timeline of events, his killing having occurred further back than that. Schillinger, however, says that Hank loves to disappear for long periods of time, saying that he has the soul of a wanderer, much like his mother, but he also says that Hank will be there when the baby is born, saying that he believes it with all of his heart and that Carrie needs to believe the same, as we cut to the crime flashback of Reverend Jeremiah Cloutier to begin Act 3. Prisoner number 00C966, Jeremiah Cloutier. Convicted December 27, 2000, embezzlement and petty larceny. Sentence, nine years. Up for parole in five. So the Reverend Jeremiah Cloutier here is played by former teen idol Luke Perry. Born October 11th, 1966 in Mansfield, Ohio, Luke was raised in nearby Frederickstown, attending the local high school where he played the school sports mascot Freddie Bird. Shortly after leaving high school, Luke would make his acting debut appearing in the TV series Voyages in an uncredited role, before moving to Los Angeles in 1984 to pursue his acting career further. Working a number of odd jobs along the way, including working for an asphalt paving company as well as working at a doorknob factory, Luke appeared in the music video for Twisted Sisters Be Cruel to Your School in 1985, the second single from their Come Out and Play album. After attending over a reported 256 auditions since arriving in Los Angeles, Luke finally landed recurring roles in Loving in 1987, where he played Ned Bates for seven episodes, and Another World appearing as Kenny for 11 episodes between 1988 and 1989. In 1990, Luke would be cast in his most iconic role, that of Dylan McKay on Fox's Beverly Hills 90210. Despite ratings that were deemed poor in the show's debut season, preceding seasons saw viewers increase each year, with Luke becoming a popular cast member to female fans. Such was his popularity, an August 1991 autograph session held at the Fashion Mall at Plantation in Florida saw over 10,000 mostly teen girls attend. So excited were the fans to meet their idol, the session was abandoned shortly after it began, Luke having to be escorted away after only 90 seconds. Riding the wave of popularity, Luke would appear in leading roles in the film Scorchers in 1991, 1992's Terminal Bliss, and also appeared as Oliver Pike in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, while on TV he hosted the February 6th edition of Saturday Night Live. Seeking more mature roles, Luke left Beverly Hills 90210 in 1995 partway through the show's sixth season. His post-90210 career got off to something of an unusual start when Luke appeared in the Italian Christmas movie Vacanze di Natale 95, playing the part of himself who was the love interest of an infatuated teenager. While in 1996 he earned top billing for the film's Normal Life and American Strays, as well as appearing in the TV movie Riot. Also in 1996, Luke provided voiceover work to the animated Mortal Kombat series Defenders of the Realm, playing the role of Sub-Zero for the show's 13 episodes. Luke would also provide the voice of Rick Jones for the animated series of The Incredible Hulk between 1996 and 1997, 
Also in 1997, Luke would provide voiceover to the TV series The Legend of Calamity Jane, as well as appearing on ABC's Spin City, as well as appearing in the film's Life Breath and The Fifth Element. In 1998, along with appearing in the TV movie Indiscreet, Luke would return to Beverly Hills 90210 during the show's ninth season, where he would remain as a recurring guest star until the show's penultimate episode, which was aired along with the show's final episode on May 17th, 2000. Scoring a 14.37 audience share, the episodes drew the show's highest ratings since the conclusion of the fifth season in 1995. Also in 2000, Luke would appear as himself in guest roles on both Family Guy and Johnny Bravo, as well as appearing as Quinn Dillon on the debut episode of the Tales from the Crypt radio series, before appearing here on Oz. Important to mention as well that Luke also has himself a very famous half-brother. I didn't know you knew Luke Perry. <laughs> no, I'm... He's my worthless half-brother. He's a big TV star. Yeah, on Fox. Okay, Krusty, let's rehearse the balloon bit. Look, kids! A horsey! And what are you making, sideshow Luke Perry? A 19th century carousel. Ah! Upstage me, will ya? Get the hell out! Look, there must be something I can do on the show. Please. For mom's sake. Well, maybe we can find something. Are you comfortable in there, Luke Perry? Fire away, Krusty. Back when I watched the show for the first time, this seemed to be some really out-of-left-field casting, although admittedly I only knew of Luke Perry as having been on Beverly Hills 90210, as I never actually watched the show, I only knew it by reputation. But I have to admit, I was actually quite surprised when I got to see him act for the first time. Luke Perry isn't a bad actor by any means. He's hardly going to be troubling the Academy Awards or anything like that, but he's perfectly competent, and dare I say better than some people we've had on the show, and in some cases are maybe even still on the show. So, Reverend Cloutier has been convicted of embezzlement and petty larceny, which is basically misappropriation of funds and theft of property of less than a legally specified amount, and has been sentenced for nine years, up for parole in five, in what is almost a carbon copy of what allegedly occurred on Father Ted. What are you talking about? The money from that Lourdes thing. <laughs> Different thing altogether, Dougal. First of all, that money was just resting in my account before I moved it on. It was resting for a long time, Ted. Yes, but a good long rest. So we see Cloutier in the cafeteria with some of the other Christian inmates, who haven't been around for quite some time, as Keller explains to Ribado about Cloutier being one of those TV evangelists. Ribado saying that until this embezzlement scandal he was bigger than Falwell, which is a reference to Jerry Falwell and who has been mentioned on the show before. We talked about him back in series three. Cloutier approaches the Aryans' table, the Aryans seemingly having gained themselves a pair of bald-headed twins. He introduces himself to Schillinger, who sat with Jazz, an image that I just can't get my head around knowing that Evan Seinfeld is Jewish. Cloutier says that he brings Schillinger greetings from Calvin Anderson, someone that Schillinger seems to know on the outside, presumably he's his local priest, as Cloutier tells him that when Schillinger has some spare time, he'd like to talk with him. Cloutier is wearing his normal clothing, rather than one of the blue boiler suits, which would suggest that he's been assigned to M-City rather than Unit B, 
which seems a bit much for someone in on a conviction of embezzlement, but it would explain why they're meeting here for the first time. Schillinger asks what he'd like to talk about, as Cloutier implies that it's just for a general chat about life, inside and outside of us. Saying that his schedule is pretty empty, meaning that somebody else must be using the pool table, Schillinger asks how about right now, and the two of them head off. We see Beecher having a visit with Holly where he's reading Jack and the Beanstalk, a story in which Jack commits robbery by stealing a golden harp as well as a load of treasure, but we're soon back in the library with Schillinger and Cloutier, who's asking if Schillinger believes in Jesus Christ, Schillinger saying of course he does. Cloutier then says that he wants to ask Schillinger another question, and that he wants him to answer truthfully. He asks whether or not Schillinger is happy, Schillinger saying that he is, but Cloutier reminds him that he wanted an honest answer, and that throughout Schillinger's life he has thought that his way was the right way, maybe even the best or only way, and that despite that Schillinger has not only a dead wife, but also a dead son while the other is missing, and that all the while Schillinger is stuck in Oz, describing it as a miserable hellhole. Taking all of that into account, he asks how any man could be happy, and places his hand on Schillinger's shoulder, telling him to let the joy of Jesus Christ fill his heart, and let him who suffered take away Schillinger's suffering, and to up and up to the Lord. After a moment of silence, Schillinger makes it clear that he doesn't want to be touched, telling Cloutier to get his fucking hand off him, Cloutier doing so while never breaking eye contact. Cut to Beecher meeting with his brother Angus in... Actually, I'm not too sure exactly where this is supposed to be. There seems to be what looks like the top of a reception desk next to an open doorway, and Angus is leaning against some brown bit of surface while the rest of it is all blue. No idea what's going on here, it all seems a bit makeshift, which leads me to believe that this was something of a late addition to the script, and they just had to make it look like somewhere, but I've no idea where it's supposed to be. So this is Angus Beecher's debut on the show, and he is played by Jace Bartok. On July 31st, 1975, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Jace made his acting debut in 1987, appearing in the TV movie Almost Partners. Appearing in minor roles throughout the 1990s, Jace's first recurring role came on TV in 1998, where he appeared as Kip in three episodes of You're the One. In 2000, Jace appeared in minor roles in the films Rope Walk, Home Sweet Hoboken and Calling Bobcat, before appearing here on Oz. Beecher asks his brother how law school is going, Angus being the latest in the Beecher family to pursue a career in the law, with Angus saying that he's in a constant state of chasing his own ass saying that not only does he have to become the perfect lawyer, he has to be the ideal husband and father too. Taking that to heart, Beecher asks if that's because he fucked it all up, Angus insisting that that isn't what he meant, but Beecher tells him that's how their parents feel, especially following the kidnapping and his revelation about his and Keller's relationship. Right on cue, Keller passes by unable to hide his shit-eating grin but Angus doesn't seem to notice him and says that Mama and Papa Beecher are old-fashioned, and that none of this makes any sense to them, as Holly arrives from around the corner of wherever the hell this is supposed to be, and Beecher picks her up and gives her a kiss and a hug, as he sees Keller making out with some blonde, Keller even managing to lock eyes with Beecher as he does. Over in M-City we get another round of Up Your Ante, this time featuring Robert Klein helping out returning contestant John Carpenter. Not going to do a full introduction here for Robert Klein as he's only on screen for a matter of seconds, but he's a native New Yorker and perhaps best known as a stand-up comedian, who at the time of broadcast had had nine comedy specials air on TV, seven of which were broadcast on HBO, as well as having five comedy albums. Robert had carved himself a career as an actor also, 
with appearances on shows such as the rebooted Twilight Zone in 1985, and he sits in the number two slot on the Oz Actors to appear on Frasier list, going into KACL during Series 1, Episode 6, The Crucible. The question revolves around the meaning behind the phrase The Beast with Two Backs, the answer of course being sex, which Beecher answers with a faraway look in his eyes, as Keller approaches from behind and gets into his ear asking about Angus, saying that Beecher's brother is cute and wanting to know if he'll fool around. Beecher doesn't take the bait though and gets up from his chair and gives Keller a little shove out of the way as the rest of the guys continue to watch the show, Boos Malley's having a great time listening to the show's jokes. Cut to the cafeteria which is doubling as Cloutier's chapel, different to the one that Ray normally has as it's been decked out with a red curtain and is also hanging across from... somewhere. Cloutier mentions Maradek, not only a Swedish black metal band but also the King of Babylon, and how he released Jehoiakin from prison, speaking kindly to him as Jehoiakin removed his prison clothes as the two of them took meals together for the rest of his life. Schillinger watches on from the back of the crowd, but a different voice vents some frustration, calling the whole thing bullshit. Cloutier calls for the heckler to identify himself, calling him a loudmouth, and asks for him to have the courage to face him, as the towering Jim Burns rises to his feet. Jim Burns has been on the show for some time as a background character, first appearing as Jazz's M-City sponsor when he arrived at Oz, but this is the first credited appearance for Peter James Kelch, the actor playing him. According to his IMDb bio, which seems to have been written by a fan, so take this with a pinch of salt, Peter was born in the Bronx and apparently had run-ins with the law in his youth. After graduating from college and beginning a career as a world-class swimmer, something which I can find no evidence of, so let's just take that for what it is, Peter supposedly posed as a print model, before acting in minor roles in a number of projects in both Japan and Italy, again something of which I can find no evidence of ever actually having happened. After a supposedly very successful run on the off-Broadway circuit, again something which I can find no evidence of, Peter then had a quote-unquote good run in England before returning to the US. Peter would make his screen acting debut in 1997, appearing in the film Tromeo and Juliet, where he played the part of Bruno Fitzgibbon, and something which I can confirm does actually exist, before appearing here on Oz. So as I say, this is Jim Byrne's first major contribution to the show, despite having been on it for some time, and he does cut an intimidating presence standing around six foot four, and with that booming voice he's got kind of a passing resemblance to David Vincent from Morbid Angel. Cloutier calls Jim forward and climbs down from the stage, asking why Jim is in Oz, Jim telling him that they say that he murdered his brother, but protests his innocence. Cloutier addresses the crowd once again, saying that they see a sinner before them, and also claiming that Jim is possessed by the demons of fear, guilt and hate. Cloutier grabs Jim's forehead and calls for the demons to be gone, casting them out in the name of Jesus Christ the Saviour, as Jim begins to fall to his knees. Cloutier calls for the demons to leave Jim and to sink back into the eternal fires of damnation, commanding it in the name of God as he pushes Jim's forehead one last time, sending Jim to the floor. As the inmates look on, Jim looks perplexed as Cloutier asks him to rise up, taking him by the hand and asking him to praise the Lord. Regaining his feet, Jim throws his arms wide open, looking up to the heavens, and screams for everyone to praise the Lord, which gets an ovation from the inmates. Well... Everyone except Schillinger, although he does seem to have been moved by what he's seen occur. I really enjoyed this scene, as you can probably tell by how I went about reading some of those lines, 
it definitely served a purpose and really gets Cloutier across well. Ribeiro mentions about him being a popular evangelist, similar to a Billy Graham or a Pat Robertson type preacher, and we got to see that in full force here. Of course, I haven't usually got time for evangelists, especially this kind of TV personality evangelist. I certainly wouldn't be the first person to call them a bunch of con men peddling some easy answers, but Luke Perry was really good here, and Cloutier coming in is perhaps the exact thing that Schillinger has needed for some time. We saw throughout Series 3 that he seemed to be on the brink of changing his ways once his son arrived in Oz, only for it to all go south again as he and Beecher continue to terrorise each other. Now though, he's in the presence of someone who appears to have a tremendous amount of influence, taking a hardened criminal like Jim Burns and appearing to turn his outlook around completely in a matter of moments. Perhaps Cloutier is the man that Schillinger has been looking for all this time. We see Cloutier reading his Bible in the library with some of the other Christians, as Schillinger approaches him. Cloutier offers Schillinger a seat, which he takes, as he tells Cloutier that he does want to be happy, Cloutier again placing his hand on Schillinger's shoulder. As he returns to Unit B, Schillinger confides in Robson, who has returned from the hall at some point, about meeting with Cloutier, but Robson asks what the scam is. See, he's not buying this evangelist nonsense either. Schillinger says that it's been months since Gary was killed, and that he's been expecting Beecher to retaliate, but so far he hasn't done anything, and that he intends to meet with Beecher in one of Sister Pete's victim-offender interaction sessions, something which Robson thinks is crazy. Schillinger tells Robson that he's sick of the horseshit and wants to concentrate on the birth of his first grandchild, and that all he wants is a little taste of happiness. Over in her office, Pete and Beecher are talking about the possibility of an interaction session with Schillinger occurring, Pete saying that she believes that Schillinger is being genuine about wanting to put the ugliness to rest, but Beecher says that he tried that by reuniting him with Hank, and that all he got in return was a dead son and a traumatised daughter. Pete points out, however, that this time, for the first time in fact, the attempt at reconciliation is coming from Schillinger rather than the other way around. Beecher, however, doesn't share Pete's optimism, reckoning that this could just be another one of Schillinger's plans of revenge. Pete takes that on board, but also says that they'll never know if they don't try, as we cut to the crime flashback of Ronald Barlog, not Ronald Balrog as some sites have him listed. He is not the boxer from Street Fighter 2. He's working away in a mechanics garage when the SWAT break open the door and arrest everyone inside, with Ronnie being convicted of car theft and sentenced to 13 years, up for parole in six. One of the actors playing one of the other mechanics in this scene receives a credit, that going to Liam McNamara, who I'm guessing is the guy being made to assume the position against the wall, but Ronald, or Ronnie as he's referred to more often than not, is played by Brian Bloom. Born June 30th, 1970 in Merrick, New York, Brian is the older brother of Scott Bloom, himself an actor and producer, as well as Mike Bloom, a musician and former member of the alt-rock group Rilo Keeley. Brian's first credited acting role came in 1983, appearing as Dusty Donovan in As the World Turns, Dusty hopefully being the character's first name and not just a description of some guy named Donovan. For his role in the show's 1984-1985 season, Brian became the youngest winner of the Outstanding Leading Man Award at the Daytime Emmys, and would be nominated for the same award for the preceding two years. In addition to his role on The Popular Soap, Brian would appear as Tony Despirito in a different twist as part of ABC's weekend specials, and also make his film debut appearing in Sergio Leone's epic crime movie, Once Upon a Time in America. In addition to minor roles in film, 
Brian would continue to appear on As the World Turns until 1988, with his final episode airing on September 8th. In 1989, Brian would appear in minor roles on TV for shows such as Beauty and the Beast, 21 Jump Street, Matlock, and Empty Nest. While in 1990 he appeared as Antonio in the TV movie Voyage of Terror, The Achille Loro Affair. In 1991, Brian appeared as a love interest in the video to Alanis Morissette's Too Hot, as well as appearing on TV in Over My Dead Body and Brotherhood of the Gun. In 1992, Brian landed a recurring role on 2000 Malibu Road, appearing as Eric Adler for six episodes, while in 1994 he appeared as the titular character in the Bandit series of TV movies, a spin-off from the Smokey and the Bandit film franchise. Whilst filming one of the Bandit movies, Although it isn't clear exactly which one, as all of them were filmed in the same year, Brian apparently suffered a head injury. Shortly afterwards, and presumably with a newfound outlook, Brian began studying Eastern philosophy. Also in 1994, Brian appeared as Zach Phillips in three episodes of Melrose Place, while in 1995 he appeared as Clayton Martin in Touch by an Angel. Returning to film in 1996 with Vampirella, a title which I'm sure you'll be shocked to learn went straight to video, Brian would also appear in a number of movies in 1998, including Daybreak, The Sender, and Extramarital. In 2000, Brian would appear on TV in Blood Money as well as the film Across the Line, before appearing here on Oz. It also mentions in his bio that he once drove from Los Angeles to New York with the actress Alyssa Milano, and then turned back around and drove back to LA with his brother Scott, which sounds like the trade-off of some kind of bizarre hostage negotiation. Anyway, we see Ronnie meeting Beecher who's been assigned as Ronnie's sponsor. They shake hands as Ronnie says to call him that, he doesn't seem to like Ronald, and Murphy also calls him Ronnie as he tells him to move along, something which we saw him do when Supreme arrived a few episodes back. He just goes with it, he hasn't got time for the argument. As he makes his way through M-City to his new digs, Ronnie notices Keller who sat playing chess once again with Ryan, and Ronnie heads over to him glad to see Keller, and they're all, hey man, and check out this motherfucker, and hugging each other and seemingly going back some way. Beecher's presence cuts this reunion short, however, Keller saying that he'll catch up with Ronnie later. Ronnie leaves to go and put away his new belongings, leaving Beecher and Keller in a role reversal from earlier, with Beecher saying that Ronnie's cute and asking if he likes to fool around. Over in their pod, Beecher and Ronnie get acquainted, including a not-so-subtle exchange about Ronnie liking to be on top, as Beecher questions Ronnie about his past with Keller, Ronnie saying that they were partners for a while. Beecher asks if the two of them ever fucked, Ronnie asking after a long pause what Beecher means, but Beecher eases the tension with a smile and says to Ronnie that if he ever needs anything to ask him, and they shake hands as Keller watches on from the chess table. No sooner have we completed one crime flashback, we're then into another one as we see a shootout between some thugs and a number of police at some kind of construction site. The bullets fly as our man gathers some more weapons and starts to dual-wield his pistols, taking out three more officers and injuring a fourth who tries to escape crawling on his stomach. His efforts are in vain though as he is shot multiple times by new inmate Burr Redding, who was convicted of murder in the first degree as well as seven counts of attempted murder and has been sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. So Burr Redding here is played by Anthony Chisholm, Born April 9th, 1943 in Cleveland, Ohio, Anthony began reciting poetry at a young age, citing his mother of giving him an appreciation of the spoken word. A veteran of the Vietnam War, having been drafted in 1964 and where he became a platoon leader, 
Anthony studied architecture in his native Cleveland, but would pursue a career in acting after enrolling at the Negro Ensemble Company, attending a masterclass held by Lloyd Richards. Speaking to Newsday in an interview from 2000, Anthony described how, quote, After I was discharged from Vietnam, I got a small role in a musical, The Boys from Syracuse, and then a small part in the movie Uptight where I met a load of actors. I packed my car, and I've been working ever since. End quote. Anthony went uncredited for his role in Uptight, with his first credited role coming the following year for the film Putney Swope, following up with a minor role in 1970's Cotton Comes to Harlem. Making his TV debut in 1974, appearing in a production of King Lear for the series' great performances, Anthony gained only one credit during the 1980s, appearing in 1981's Death of a Poet. Instead, Anthony gained experience by acting on the stage, drawing inspiration from his Vietnam War experience in several productions produced by the Vietnam Veterans Ensemble Theatre Company, which included a well-received production of Tracers, playing at the Public Theatre in Manhattan in 1985, and which also toured internationally. In addition to his work with those companies, Anthony acted in a number of productions written by the playwright August Wilson. Speaking on what drew him to Wilson's work, Anthony told Newsday, quote, I first saw Fences and connected with it pretty quickly because I grew up in Cleveland, which is not far from Pittsburgh, where August Wilson was born. His old timers taught pretty much the same as guys I'd grown up around, end quote. The two men would eventually meet in 1990 when Anthony auditioned for the role of Wolf in the play Two Trains Running. Although Anthony didn't get the part initially, losing out to Samuel L. Jackson for the production's run at the Yale Repertory Theatre, Anthony would play the role when the play moved to Boston, as well as acting in the show's West Coast tour. Anthony would reprise the role in 1992 upon making his Broadway debut, appearing at the Walter Kerr Theatre between April 13th and August 30th alongside Roscoe Lee Brown and Lawrence Fishburne. Anthony would return to film acting in 1993, appearing as Dylan in Let's Get Busy, and in 1996 would return to TV during the second season of New York Undercover. Realising that the opportunities for black actors was greater away from the stage due to the expansion of shows on cable TV, Anthony told Newsday, quote, We as actors want to act, but first of all, I'm African American. And putting politics aside, what we need is more producers, more writers, and as a people, more cohesiveness. We as black people have got to support the theatre, end quote. In 1998, Anthony appeared as Longhorn in the film Beloved, as well as acting in the short film A Dozen Kills, before appearing here on Oz. Rather than go immediately to Burr, as we would do usually when we meet a new inmate, we go to McManus' office, where he's looking over Burr's file as well as taking some medication, and he's also meeting with Saeed, telling him that ever since Adebisi's death, the homeboys have been in disarray, and that Burr might be the man to galvanise them. Saeed is under the impression that McManus is looking for him to gain Burr's confidence, but McManus corrects him, saying that he wants them to do it together, making Burr a partner instead of a foe. Saeed tells McManus that he'll do what he can as Burr enters the office, McManus introducing himself as well as Saeed, and also showing Burr some respect by referring to him as Mr. Redding. Saeed approaches Burr, telling him assalamu alaikum, but Burr is aware of who Saeed is already, mentioning that Saeed is the cat that killed Adebisi something which he calls outstanding, as he's also heard that Adebisi was one mean motherfucker, which by proxy must make Saeed even worse, and how he'll have to watch his step. Saeed reaffirms that he killed Adebisi in self-defence and was exonerated by the court, Burr saying that he doesn't doubt that, but that motives are less important than outcome, 
and that Adebisi is dead while Saeed is still standing. Seeming somewhat unnerved, Saeed asks if he can leave, but Mamanus declines his request and tells Burr that it's important to understand how things work in Oz. Burr reveals that he grew up in the ghetto and that his father passed away when he was just 10 years old. He also mentions about how he had to quit school and support the family by doing a bit of everything, from shining shoes to shooting crap. Much like the actor portraying him, Burr is also a Vietnam veteran, mentioning that the army taught him how to kill small women and children, and that he's been in penitentiaries from Arizona to Alabama and back. He makes sure that McManus understands that he doesn't say all of this out of pride or shame, more that he wants McManus to grasp that he's well aware of how things work, and he then asks if he can leave, McManus this time granting the request. Fantastic scene this one, and a great introduction for Burr Redding. Sometimes it can take a few episodes for a character to bed in and for us to understand them and their motivations, but Burr comes in with a presence and a backstory that we immediately understand. Anthony Chisholm's gravelly voice adds so much to the character straight from the off as well. You can tell that, and as he mentions about experiencing the Vietnam War, Burr has seen some serious shit in his life. That gravelly voice is something of a trademark of Anthony Chisholm, something which was probably helped by the fact that back in his theatre acting days, he used to smoke two packs of cigarettes per day. We see Burr heading to his pod in MC, as Augustus catches a glimpse of him out of his peripheral vision and calls out to Burr. Much like Ronnie and Keller a few moments ago, Augustus and Burr seem to have a history on the outside, albeit a very different one. Augustus is overjoyed to see Burr, telling him that he's glad to see him there, which he realises is a poor choice of words, but Burr takes it in his stride, as Augustus asks how Delilah is. Delilah is Burr's wife, who has tragically passed away while Augustus has been inside, Burr mentioning that her ovaries went sour on her, so I'm guessing that she has passed possibly due to ovarian cancer. Rather than dwell on that, Burr asks Augustus to lay out the situation, wanting to know who the players are in MC, and which brothers need a good talking to. Augustus takes a look around through the pod glass and points out Poet, who heads off to the laundry room where he's soon joined by Burr. They say since Adebisi died, you've been running the homeboys. That's right, man. That's right. They also say you've been doing a shit job. Look, old man, let me tell you something. You think old man bothers me? Boy, I done had a whole lot of men tougher than you didn't call me worse than make it to old. My age is my honor and my strength. Shit. You think you can just come up in and take control? Some people are born leaders, others are not. A wise man knows his own limitations. You think on that. Having made his position clear to Poet, Burr meets with Morales and Chucky in one of the classrooms. Morales talking about how they have a nice operation going, as Chucky says that they don't want Burr coming in and fucking it up. Morales tells Chucky, look, mate, just relax, and says to Burr that they would value his friendship and maybe even cut him a slice of the profits. Burr calls that extremely generous and that he'll get back to him as he gets up to leave, but it's a now or never type of deal as Chucky gets in Burr's face. Before anything major can break out though, Murphy is on the scene, busting in and saying that he's told Morales and Chucky before that the classroom is for classes, not their board of directors meetings, and tells them to move out. Burr and Morales share a look as Morales makes his way out, as Murphy jokes about Burr's slow exit asking whether or not he's waiting for an engraved invitation, and gives one of the most New York responses ever. 
What are you waiting for, an engraved invitation here, Reddy? Come on! Later in the day, Morales and Chucky are hanging out on the top floor while Poet, who seems to have fallen in line fairly quickly, is talking to Burr, warning him that Morales and Chucky are plotting against him to close out Act 3. Red, man, you know that motherfuckers is plotting against you, right? Good, that's what I want them to do. You want them to kill you? I want them to try. Act 4 then opens with Peter Benson reporting about a Chinese freighter running aground off the Jeb Island Sound, which doesn't appear to be a real place. There is the Block Island Sound off the coast of nearby Rhode Island, but that's as close as I could find. Having evacuated the ship's crew, the US Coast Guard discovered that the boat was carrying 36 illegal aliens, something which I've always found to be a weird way of describing refugees. Until the legal status of the refugees can be determined, the State Department have decided to house the 18 men, 12 women and 6 children that make up the group in various different state buildings, one of which is going to be ours. The inmates don't look too thrilled at this as we cut to a staff meeting in the library where McManus is telling Leo that this is insane and arguing that the state has 40 other prisons available, and to send the refugees there instead. Leo says that he's been on the phone with the Secretary of State, who if we're going by the real-world timeline would have been Madeleine Albright, who has asked Leo to help out and that he isn't inclined to argue. But Manus makes a quip about Leo looking for an appointment in the new administration, which is an interesting line as Miss Albright was on her way out of office at the time of broadcast, and by the time the next episode aired, the Secretary of State would have been Colin Powell. Leo tells McManus not to be snarky as Claire asks where exactly are they going to house these incoming refugees, and that they're on the brink of overcrowding as it is. Leo insists that this is a temporary situation, and that his plan is to set up some beds in the M-City common room. Understandably, McManus isn't going for this idea, saying that he's only just re-established some order in the unit, and that Leo isn't going to upset the apple cart. Leo, however, says this isn't a matter for discussion, saying that they have an emergency on their hands, and that everyone, including McManus, will bend. McManus, who's firing one-liners off like a stand-up comedian this week, says, You mean bend over? Which gets a laugh out of Claire as Pete intervenes, saying that from a practical standpoint this is a pain, but that they can't lose sight of the humanitarian issue here, and that these men have paid a sizable amount of money to get out of China and a repressive regime and that the papers have described the conditions of the boat they were on as worse than slave ships. She says that with the men having sailed for months already, only to then get separated from their wives and children when they were arrested, if they must have them at Oz, then they must at least embrace them. Trust Pete to be the voice of reason in all of this. She mentioned a couple of times that the men have been sailing for months, and I got to wondering which way exactly have they gone about sailing to end up on the east coast of the US. Logic would suggest they've gone north through the Northern Pacific and the Bering Sea, then through Canada's Northwestern Passages and the Labrador Sea. That would have meant navigating Arctic waters though, something which I'm not sure is entirely possible with a standard freight boat. Murphy entered the library with Gao Lu Zhao from the State Department, played here by Elaine C. Elaine will be around for a couple more episodes after this one, so I'll introduce her properly another time but right now she's here to inform Leo that the bus carrying the men has arrived outside. And wouldn't you believe it, the presence of an attractive woman has completely changed McManus' entire demeanour, as he gets up and shakes her hand and tells her that the men will be staying in his unit, and that if there's anything he can do to make them more comfortable to just let him know. Claire shaking her head at McManus going through his usual routine whenever a woman comes within a few feet of him. 
Gao leaves and asks McManus to come with her, and even Leo seems a little tired of McManus' old tricks. As we cut to receiving a discharge where we see the Chinese refugees, all 18 of them, being informed of their new temporary living situation. If there are 40 prisons across the state, why are all 18 men being sent to the same one? Just send one or two to each one and you've avoided the issues of overcrowding. As Gao translates, which I'm presuming is genuine, McManus addresses the men saying that he isn't going to lie about things, and that the men they'll be staying with are amongst some of the most violent in the country, but to counteract that they have added extra staff to the unit, and they've been instructed to watch over them. McManus asks Gao if any of the men speak English, as one solitary man stands up, although his friend tries to stop him. McManus explains that he's relying on him to keep communication going, as the man says that he is at McManus' service. As the men are taken off to M-City by Officer Armstrong, we focus on these two men, who become the main characters out of this group. The English speaker, who's named Bian, tells his friend Gonjin that he needs to speak English now that he's in America. Gonjin tells Bian that he should never volunteer, but Bian tells him that they are in danger of being sent back to China, and that he'll do everything that he can to prove that he belongs here. Gonjin is played by Jin S. Kim, who I'll introduce next episode, while Bian is played by Ken Lung. There is a third member of this main group, an elderly man named Ping Hao, who is played by Stephen S. Chen, who I'll also introduce next episode. Born January 21st, 1970, Ken Lung was born to Chinese parents in the Two Bridges section of New York's Lower East Side. Moving at a young age to Midwood, Brooklyn and completing high school in Old Bridge, New Jersey, Ken attended New York University studying under Catherine Russell and Nan Smither, as well as studying at the HB Studio where he studied under Ann Jackson. Acting mainly in downtown spaces and black box theatres, traditionally minimalistic spaces with an intimate atmosphere, Ken worked with groups such as the Ma Yi Theatre Company, as well as Star, a travelling group of actor-educators based at Mount Sinai Hospital in East Harlem. In addition to working with these companies, Ken also acted in productions of Hot Keys, Corpus Christi, and Richard III, where he appeared with Oz alumni Austin Pendleton. Ken's screen acting debut came in 1995, appearing on TV in Law and & Order, and he would also make his film debut that same year, appearing in Welcome to the Dollhouse and Pictures of Baby Jane Doe. In 1997, Ken would have minor roles in the films Red Corner and Come Done, while on TV he appeared in the third season of New York Undercover in the episode titled Vendetta, an episode which also featured Oz alumni Lauren Velez and Edie Falco, with the episode also being directed by Oz alumni Nick Gomez. In 1998, Ken landed his largest acting role to date, appearing as Sang opposite Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker in Rush Hour, while in 1999 he appeared as Mike Ramsey in Man of the Century. Returning to TV in 2000 for episodes Wonderland and Deadline, Ken also appeared in the films Keeping the Faith, Maze and the Family Man, before appearing here on Oz. With the bed set up in MC, Murphy addresses the inmates telling them that the refugees are their guests and he expects the inmates to treat them as such, and should any harm come to them, the repercussions will be severe. He also mentions that until the refugees get familiar with their new surroundings, the unit is being placed on lockdown which unsurprisingly doesn't go down well with the inmates, and I completely see why. This whole arrangement is ridiculous. As the refugees make their way through the M-City gates, in a shot reminiscent of 1927's Metropolis, McManus uses this opportunity to try and cozy up to Gao, asking if she's staying in town for the night, 
and whether or not she's doing anything for dinner. But manners, just control yourself, man. You've already tried your luck with Gloria and had your eye on Floria in this episode. Just calm down there, boy. Gao asks if McManus is asking her out on a date, which he insists that he isn't, more that they both have to eat at some point, and that he just happens to know about this diner. Very informal place, nothing fancy. Let me guess, McManus. Romanian place, perchance? We don't get to hear Gao's answer as we see the refugees looking around M City at the pissed off inmates locked away in their pods. Ping Hao, who is also Gonjin's grandfather, motions around and speaks in Chinese. Bian translating for us that what he says is true. These are indeed bad men. So as I mentioned a moment ago, this living arrangement of the refugees essentially taking over M City. I can't be the only one that thinks this is bullshit, right? The cafeteria has so far doubled up as a chapel, the variety show venue, even a boxing arena so far on the show. If you had to have all 18 men stay in the same place, couldn't they have had the beds placed in there and then they're all taken outside while the regular inmates eat? Or you could have set them up in the gym for the time being, cordon off the basketball court or something. Either way would avoid having to place the regulars in lockdown, it just doesn't make any sense. And I can completely understand why the inmates would have a problem with their quote-unquote guests. Speaking of the cafeteria, we cut there where Bian is being served up with whatever the hell this is, mashed potatoes, maybe cream corn, as Ryan asks him if he has a problem with the cuisine, referring to Bian as Hop Singh, a reference to the cook character played by Victor Sen Young on Bonanza. Bian tells Ryan no, obviously not wanting to cause any trouble as Ryan tells him to move along because he's holding up his regular customers. It's a subtle dig, but it's clear that the men are not endearing themselves to the inmates. As the three of them sit down to eat, Bian and Gonjin talk about hoping that their wives and children are okay in their accommodation, as Chucky and his henchmen make their way over to the table, telling them that this is their table, and after some confusion, he tells the three of them, in no uncertain terms, to move somewhere else. Mario grabs one of the refugees by the arm, but Bian calms the situation saying that they will move and that he's sorry, but Morales intervenes, telling his business partner that this is no way to treat the men, describing them as poor fellas. Turning his attention to Bian, Morales asks if he is their leader, which Bian denies, but Morales points out that the other men listen to him, which must make Bian the leader, which is sound logic I suppose. Morales tells Bian to come and see him sometime so that they can talk, Bian nodding as the men make their exit from the table, avoiding any further conflict as Burr watches on from a distance. Later in the day back in M City, Morales motions for Bian to join him, but Gonjin pleads with Bian not to go talk with him, Bian saying that Morales is a powerful man who may be able to help them. Cursing ever getting on the boat, Gonjin wishes they were back in Chengdu right now, meaning that before they even got on the boat, the men had already endured a cross-country trip across China, which having been there, let me tell you, is no mean feat. Bian reminds Gonjing about watching his crops burn in the hot sun, as well as watching his own daughter die. Bian says that he can't do that again and will never go back to China, stating that he'd rather die right there in America, a kiss of death if ever there was one, but let's wait and see what happens. Bian meets with Morales in his pod, where Morales warns Bian about Bear and his dislike for Bian and his countrymen. Jushi? Jushi, what does that mean? Um, chairman, like Mao. 
I love that. Jushi Morales. In fact, it would be Morales Jushi. The family name is always first. See, now that's what's fucked up about your side of the world. The names, the way you read, the funny alphabet. I mean, you people do everything backwards. Or you people do. Right. Mr. Bian, the reason I asked to see you is because I want to warn you. You see that man over there? Yes. Burr Redding is your enemy. He hates you and all your friends. Why? We have done nothing to him. Well, he served in Vietnam. We are Chinese. He don't know the difference. All he sees is your yellow skin. And he has vowed to kill each and every one of you. I will go to him. I will reason with him. Does he look like a reasonable man? You must kill him. Not you necessarily, but one of your men. We are simple folk. Farmer, factory worker. We left the China to escape the killers. Not to become one. Then from now on, I will call you Hombre Muerto. What is that? Dead man. As I mentioned before, Ken Lung was born in America. His parents were Chinese, but he's American. The accent he's putting on here at Asbian is probably quite accurate, but Ken's natural accent definitely slipped out when he said killers right there. We left the China to... Escape the killers! Over in McManus' office, he has summoned Bear for a meeting, saying that one of the Chinese has come to him informing him that Bear has threatened them. Bear looks confused about the so-called threat, saying that he hasn't said two words to any of the Chinese, but McManus tells Bear that he has more reason to believe his source than he does Bear, and that if anything happens, anything at all, he's holding Bear personally responsible. Bear and quite rightly, storms out of the office calling the whole thing bullshit, Mamana saying that regardless of that, that's the way it is, and warns Burr to stay clear. Over at the phones, Bian is speaking to his wife, asking for her to tell his son that he loves him, and says that he loves her too. He hangs up and heads back to speak with Gonjin, who's asking how she sounded, as Bian is overcome with emotion, saying that his wife said that she misses him, and that Gonjin's wife is bossing everyone around. He thanks Morales, who it looks as though gave up his phone privilege so that Bian could make the call, who tells Bian that it was the least that he could do. Of course, the least that he could do was absolutely nothing, but I digress. The siren sounds as Murphy calls for the men to attend their work detail, Bian asking what the siren was for, as Morales explains that the inmates all have specific jobs. Bian says that he would like to work also, saying that he wants to do his part. Taken with Bian's enthusiasm, Morales says he'll go and talk to some people and see what he can do towards getting Bian a job, but it looks like Gonjin just wants his friend to keep to himself rather than mixing with the inmates. Cut to the room where Keller was stabbed that time where Bian is sealing some folders by putting an elastic band around them, a foolproof secure method if ever there was one. Morales and his crew enter asking how things are going, mispronouncing Bian's surname as Usi, when it's actually pronounced Ishe. Not that Morales is going to need to worry about how to pronounce it for much longer, as Bian is grabbed by the Latino goons asking what's going on. Morales explains that Bian has served his purpose, and that he's grateful for that, 
but he only has one thing left to ask of him. Wonderfully naive Bian asks what that is as Morales grabs a conveniently placed staple gun, as Bian is held down pleading with Morales to let him go because he has a wife and child. Not totally sure why this staple gun is in this room. A stapler I could understand as it seems to house office supplies and such things, but I suppose stapling a man to death with a normal stapler doesn't quite have the same impact. Morales tells Bian that his wife and son will mourn him forever, as he then puts a number of staples into Bian's head, the camera transitioning through a wall of red to Bian being placed in a body bag by two men from the coroner's office. Having heard of Bian's demise, McManus marches straight into Burr's pod, telling Burr that he warned him about what would happen, and orders for Burr to be placed in the cage. Burr asks what the fuck for, as Murphy and another officer escort him to the cage for all of MC to see, pushing him inside, telling him to get the fuck in there. Burr shakes the fencing of the cage, demanding that it be opened up, and screaming as Chucky and Morales watch on, as Augustus narrates about how any convert whether he goes from communist to capitalist or from six packs a day to smoke free, ends up condemning their former practices and becoming a fanatic to close out the episode. What's going on, Usi? Issue, eh? Issue, sorry. Not that I'll need to know how to pronounce your name for much longer. What is going on? Well, you see, Issue, you've done everything I've needed you to do, and I'm grateful. It's just one last thing I must ask of you. What, what? What's that? Die. My wife and my son. They will mourn you. I warned you. Put him in the cage. What the fuck for? Come on, let's go. What the fuck's going on here? Come on, I'm open! convert, whether he goes from communist to capitalist or from six packs a day to smoke free, ends up condemning his former practices. Because those beliefs didn't work for him, they can't work for anybody. His vision becomes narrow, blinded by the light. Whether he's transformed into a Hindu or joins AA, he becomes a fanatic, if you ask me. It's the fanatics who fuck up the world. It's the fanatics who think they got God on their side. The rest of us we don't need divine light. In the darker night, all we want is enough light so that we don't stub our toe on the way to the toilet. So there you go, Series 4, Episode 10, Conversions. This felt more like the episode that we should have gotten last time, in which you had Saeed struggling to come to terms with what went down between him and Adebisi, and actively pushing away Leroy, who is looking to change his ways. And we also saw that Morales and Chucky have become a presence in M-City in the intervening six months following Adebisi's death. The addition of Bear Redding shook things up on that front with him coming in and quickly establishing himself as the new leader of the Homeboys, as well as seemingly bolstering their ranks with the addition of Augustus. And the arrival of Jeremiah Cloutier has provided Schillinger with the desire to want to end this bitter feud with Beecher. 
Speaking of Beecher, he and Keller got more screen time than what they've had recently to push their story along, although their relationship still seems to be very cat and mouse. Miguel has also finally returned to the show, having been mentioned in passing news reports for quite some time, and there was considerably less Omar in this episode as well, which, after the way that he came in during the last episode, I was quite happy with. Floria left a memorable impression with her general feistiness, and even Rebido and Boosmal has got something to do as Boosmal has proposed to Norma, as well as revealing the tunnel that he's been secretly digging. On the flip side of those positive steps, however, Gloria suddenly developing feelings for the man whose actions caused her husband's death is complete nonsense, and the episode fell completely off a cliff in the final 10-15 to 15 minutes with the Chinese refugee storyline. The reason for them being in Oz is underdeveloped, and seemingly the only reason they're there right now was as a way for Morales to set up Bear for murder. Now, is that down to the rushed production of Series 4B that this all happened so quickly? Possibly, but in order for it to make sense, you have to overlook the fact that 18 refugees have been placed in one maximum security prison rather than spread around the various ones that the state apparently has. You also have to overlook the fact that these men have been placed in the unit harbouring the prison's most dangerous inmates. I know that this is drama and fiction and that the rules of the real world don't have to always apply, but there has to be a logic to it. And I'm sorry, but 18 Chinese refugees being placed in the most dangerous wing of a maximum security prison holds no logic. Having said that, I do still feel as though this was a better episode than the opener, which just didn't seem to have any clear direction of where it was wanting to go. This one set up new rivalries between Bear and the combo of Morales and Chucky, while Schillinger has been given reason to look towards ending his and Beecher's rivalry, and Augustus also had some character development in this episode too. While he has on occasion had minor storylines and has sometimes been used to progress others, his main role on the show has been to add charisma to the show's trademark interludes. The most we've ever known about Augustus is that he used to sell drugs and had a habit himself. We didn't know anything other than that, and we certainly didn't know anything about the people that he knew or was linked to on the outside. So that was a welcome addition to this episode. Overall, still some major issues with storylines and the overall pacing, but a much improved effort from the last episode. Get the fuck out of my office. Just the one deleted scene to talk about for this episode, in which we see Supreme meeting with his lawyer in his solitary cell. There's a back and forth between Supreme and Officer Smith, who apparently hasn't got the memo regarding Supreme's preferred name, as he opens up the cell where the female lawyer enters. Unfortunately, I couldn't find a name for this lawyer character, and obviously with this being a deleted scene, the actress went uncredited so I'm just going to have to refer to her as Supreme's lawyer. Smith asks if she's sure that she wants to be alone with Supreme, and whether or not she's afraid. But she says she's more afraid of Smith, what with the way that he was brushing up against her as they made their way down the hall. Smith heads off closing the bars of the cell, but for some reason not the actual cell door, which is presumably a safety measure. If something were to boot off in one of the cells, it's probably better to have to only get through one barrier rather than two. Supreme pulls his lawyer close, something which I can't imagine many of the other inmates doing with their lawyers, and he tells her that's my girl and starts to make out with her. She tells him not to distract her and that she's there on business, so it turns out that she is an actual lawyer. She tells Supreme that his trial starts on Monday. Supreme asks what the latest is on the case, as she tells him that the prosecutor something something. It's tough to understand the audio quality of these deleted scenes at times, but it was here where I learned that while the Region 1 DVD sets of Oz don't come with subtitles for the deleted scenes, 
the Region 2 Emerald City Collection box set of the series does, so I was able to find out that the prosecutor's case is at best considered circumstantial, which I mentioned earlier on, and that they haven't even got any witnesses tying Supreme to the killings of Mondo and Shemin, something which even I could have told you and I have no experience with the law. Supreme also mentions about them having no motive either, saying that Mondo was his brother and that he didn't even know Shemin. Supreme's lawyer tells him that in her professional opinion, he'll be acquitted, but that knowing who did commit the murders will work out in their favour. She asks if Supreme has any ideas, Supreme saying that he suspects it was Keller, but as with other instances on the show, he doesn't have any proof. Supreme's lawyer jots Keller's name down on a piece of paper, but Supreme says that Keller doesn't realise how dead he is as the scene closes. Again, bit of a nothing scene this one, and much like other things in this episode, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. How Supreme has come to this conclusion of Keller being the killer, we don't know. The most he'd have to go on was his necklace being stolen, which was stolen by Ryan in the first place. And why if they've only got circumstantial evidence has it taken six months to proceed this far? And why is it even going to trial if the prosecution has no witnesses? Like I say, I'm not an experienced man of the law, but I'm pretty sure that for anything to go to trial you would need at least one witness. The shank being found in Supreme's pod wouldn't be enough to take this to trial, so it's probably for the best that this was cut. With a death toll of one for this episode, we say goodbye to Bian Yixie, played by Ken Lung, one of the rare instances in which a member of the Oz 1 and Dunn Club passes away in their appearance on the show. Post-Oz, Ken appeared as Sayat Usama in 2001's AI Artificial Intelligence, while in 2002 he made his Broadway debut appearing in Thoroughly Modern Millie at the Marquee Theatre. Also in 2002, Ken appeared in the film Red Dragon, while on TV he once again appeared in the Law & Order franchise. In 2004, Ken appeared as Detective Steven Singh in the first instalment of the Saw franchise, and would appear in archive and photographic form in two of the franchise's sequels. Appearing in film in Inside Man, Falling from Grace and X-Men The Last Stand, all of which were released in 2006, Ken returned to TV in The Sopranos in 2007, playing Carter Chong during the show's sixth and final season. Ken's most famous role came in 2008 when he joined the cast of ABC's Lost during the show's fourth season, playing the role of Miles Strum where he was credited for a total of 49 episodes. Since the conclusion of Lost in 2010, Ken has become one of the industry's most recognised character actors, with recurring roles on TV in shows including Deception, Person of Interest and Zero Hour, as well as joining the Star Wars universe in Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens. In recent years, Ken has had recurring roles on shows including The Blacklist and Industry, and in 2020 appeared in the film Old, one of the few films produced during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, and a film which failed to live up to its intriguing trailer. At the time of recording, Ken is set to appear as Sergeant Ben Lee in the TV movie Alive, currently listed as being completed and awaiting release, as well as Searching 2, which is listed as being in post-production. While on TV, he is set to appear as Commander Zhao in 10 episodes of the live-action adaptation of Avatar The Last Airbender, which is currently filming in Canada. The Oz 1 and Dunkler would also gain two further members, with Liam McNamara appearing as a mechanic in a crime flashback, and with Robert Klein having joined us for another round of Up Your Ante. My episode MVP was a little bit easier to choose this time, as I feel like this was more like the episode that we should have gotten last time. 
An honourable mention goes to Burr Redding, who came in and made an immediate impact having been installed as the new leader of the Homeboys. It didn't all go his way, obviously, what with being set up for murder and all, but the fact that Morales and Chucky felt as though they needed to do that shows that the Homeboys were seen as being a threat once again, something which they apparently haven't been in the previous six months following Adebisi's death. The actual award though, I'm going to give to Jeremiah Cloutier for seemingly making Schillinger want some happiness in his life once again. Schillinger changing his ways was hinted at during the third series of the show once Andrew arrived at Oz, and has been stop start again ever since Hank came back onto the scene. The feud with Beecher has looked as though it is never going to end, Beecher even mentioning previously that it will only end when one of them dies. Having witnessed Cloutier's performance in the Cafeteria Chapel, in which Cloutier made a believer out of Jim Burns, Schillinger also seems to be believing the Reverend's message. While it's doubtful that Cloutier has a direct line to the good lord above, something about him has gotten through to Schillinger, and while it will still take some effort from both Schillinger and Beecher to bury their past, Cloutier should be commended for being the one to have gotten the ball rolling. So for those reasons, Jeremiah Cloutier wins the episode MVP. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so over on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castbox, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, depending on where you are in the world, or wherever you get your podcasts from. There you will find the first three series of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 4 so far, and you will also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes as well. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, leave a 5-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com, or on social media where you can get all the updates about the podcast by following the handle at InsideOzPodcast. Next time on Inside Oz, while it's been said that it's often best served cold, it can also taste quite nice too, as we find out that Series 4, Episode 11, Revenge is Sweet. Where Miguel tries to strike a deal with Leo to return to M-City, there's some dissension in the ranks of the Aryans, Gloria begins a medical experiment on some of the inmates, and some more familiar faces make what have been some long-awaited returns. All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone. Bye.